This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Oh, Nelly, it's going to get hot. A massive heat wave scorching the central and eastern parts of the country. Dangerously high temperatures today for more than 100 million of us across more than a dozen states. Temperatures in some areas of Spain are expected to hit or remain around 43 degrees Celsius this week as a sweltering heat wave continues to hang over the country. Soaring temperatures have caused the authorities to put many areas of the country on alert due to the risk of wildfires. A cloud of hot air from North Africa has sent temperatures soaring, with neighbouring France bracing itself for rising temperatures too. We've had many more heat waves after the 1980s than before. It's an enormous ratio of one to three, and climatologists tell us, and we can see it, these heat waves are likely to stretch throughout the season, whereas decades ago it happened mainly in July and August. In Spain, tourist hotspots Seville and Cordoba are set to remain around 43 degrees centigrade or 109 degrees Fahrenheit in the coming days. South Asia has been suffering unseasonably hot weather in recent months. In April, some places in India recorded their highest temperatures ever for the time of year. International researchers say such heat waves are 30 times more likely to happen because of climate change. Greenpeace India says global heating is not only causing more illness and deaths, it is also leading to crop failures and food insecurity. Forget the green talk. We are increasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every year, not cutting anything. World leaders and industrialized populations are screaming for more fossil fuel energy. One of the world's top climate scientists is calling out the international elite and consumers plunging headlong into climate disaster. Dr. Kevin Anderson says natural gas is not green. It is only a transition fuel to a deadly four-degree hotter world. And green-talking leaders are helping us lie about it all. In the UK, Kevin Anderson is Professor of Energy and Climate Change at the University of Manchester, and in Sweden at the Centre for Sustainability and the Environment at Uppsala University. Anderson has also served as both Deputy Director and Director of the UK's prestigious Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. Kevin speaks with Nick Breeze, host of the Climate Gen podcast. From Britain, Nick Breeze gathered millions of views for his YouTube interviews of climate scientists and activists. He pulls no punches, talking with Dr. Anderson in the middle of June 2022, just as heat waves raged in southern Europe, India and Pakistan, and in the United States all at the same time. Search Climate Gen, that's with two N's, Climate Gen, on YouTube or go to www.gen.cc. Nick's Climate Gen podcast is also available on all major podcast channels and Patreon. Here we go, getting real about climate with host Nick Breeze and his guest, Dr. Kevin Anderson. In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with Professor Kevin Anderson from the Tyndall Centre of Manchester University. This is a longer interview with many, I believe, crucial points for consideration. 
we discuss our current usage of the available carbon budget for 1.5 degrees Celsius at just under 1% per month. Also the dangerous and foolish behaviour of the UK Secretary of State for Energy, Kwasi Kwarteng, in trying to reclassify natural gas, methane, as a green gas in order to increase investment. Kevin points out that methane is indeed a transition fuel, but only if you want to transition to an unlivable 4 degrees C. Further evidence that these policymakers are not up to the job of tackling the climate emergency. We also discuss the treatment of activism by defenders of the status quo and how the increased activism we are witnessing will grow as the public lose faith in how we are being governed. In March, Kevin and colleagues at the Tyndall Centre released a research paper titled Phase-Out Pathways for Fossil Fuel Production Within Paris-Compliant Carbon Budgets. I begin by asking Kevin to clarify the critical points of this paper, as he can do it much more clearly than I can. Please do comment and send feedback. You can support this channel on Patreon to access interviews earlier and with extra content. You can also subscribe for free on YouTube and all major podcast channels. Thank you. Those periods of time, the the eight and ten years, which are from the start of 2022, are at current levels of emissions. So if you carried on at current emissions in in 10 years, we would have used all of the budget for a 50-50 chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade. If you're looking at a better chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade, say a 67% chance or better, then you have about seven to eight years of current emissions. But obviously, if you started to bring emissions down, then you'd have a little bit longer. But it was just to give a flavour, the current rate at which we're using the emissions in, uh, that we're emitting, in very few years, we will actually have blown the budget for 1.5 degrees centigrade. I think another way of thinking about that, of course, we're not at the start of 2022. We're in May of 2022. We're halfway through May. You know, this year alone, we've already put into the atmosphere somewhere around about 18 billion tonnes of CO2. So for the 50-50 chance of 1.5 degrees centigrade, you look at the carbon budget that remains, every month we use up a little less than 1%, about 0.9% of that budget every month. Each month, we're 1% less than we were the month before. It's quite damning, I think, when you think of it like that, that you know, 12 months in a year, that's 12% of the budget gone. Yeah, and, and just given the implications of what we're actually talking about, I mean, these are this is really our last sort of chance when we're using the emissions budget so fast. And the odds are still terrible. I mean, 50-50. I mean, you, there's a lot of things you wouldn't do with 50-50 odds. And, you yeah. know, that that kind of risk is, is exceptional. But we have been saying that for a long time. But we, of course, what we have to remind ourselves, well, we were saying this before for two degrees centigrade. And I think one of the really important things that we've learned in the last 10 years, probably even less than that now, certainly since the, the IPCC special report 1.5, which came out in 2018, is that the impacts do significantly change with even just half a degree of, of warming. So the impacts at two degrees centigrade are considerably worse than the impacts at 1.5 degrees centigrade. As I think when you talk about that in a quick day-to-day fashion, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade of warming sounds almost nothing. But I think what we've come to understand is that the impact difference between those two is huge. 
So yeah. beforehand, we were saying the chances of holding below two were incredibly slim. But what we've actually now said is we really need to be holding to 1.5 because of the, because of the, the dire situation with the impacts of 1.5. But of course, at 1.5 degrees centigrade, the budgets are even tighter. And so we end up with this position whereby we've done nothing about climate change in relation to our absolute level of emissions. They've continued to rise. But at the same time, we've brought the actual temperature we want to not exceed now to a lower level, which has reduced the carbon budget. So it's the worst of both worlds, really. We've, we've recognised the impacts look more severe than we'd thought, and therefore we've brought the, the, um, the temperature nearer, which has reduced the budget and given us even less space to play with. So this is, I mean, the language of climate emergency is correct, but of course it's not the language that's informing our policy. That was, um, it's just a rhetorical language. That was what I was going to actually say, is that, you know, the government, the UK government, and I'll just use it for for context, but the UK government declared climate emergency ages ago and pathways for countries like the UK um, to transition away from, from fossil fuel have been presented by people like yourself, other scientists. Um, and yet we don't seem to be making any progress whatsoever. I mean, is there... How many assessments of this kind are there out there that you know of? And how much traction are they getting, given you know, how severe this message actually is, these findings, rather? Yeah. I mean, this particular report focused here on the fossil fuel-producing countries, particularly oil and gas, of which there yeah. are, I think it was 88 of them around the, around the world. And some of the, some of the countries are are genuinely interested in trying to do something about slowly reducing their production of oil and gas. But even those countries are not in line with anything approaching the sort of reductions that would be required to meet our uh, the carbon budgets associated with our commitments. So there's still this huge, and I would say increasing gulf between what we're prepared to do and what we're saying is actually necessary. And one of the ways I think that has been massaged, which I think very dangerously, is this language of net zero. And so a country like the UK, and indeed, I as I understand it, in Australia now with a new leader, they're still thinking they can open new a few new mines. We're looking at the UK, we can expand our oil and gas production. Um, the Norwegian government is looking at 29, has opened up 29 new licenses around the Arctic. So across the world, and, and the same with Biden in the US, you know, across the world, we are seeing the oil and gas producers looking for ever more oil and gas to produce, and indeed coal, which is completely and utterly un incompatible with our commitments. But we've massaged it with this language of net zero by 2050 that allows us to, to some extent, sort of, sort of salve our conscience in the short term by passing that burden on to the longer term. So we do not have to face the, the huge political challenges that the actual numbers dictate. UK Secretary of State for Energy, Kwasi Kwarteng, has said recently he wants natural gas to be reclassified as a green energy source to entice investors. And in the context of the Paris Agreement, what would your response to that be? Well, I mean, it's, it's just nonsense. It's a sort of flying pigs argument. Um, gas is principally methane. The chemical equations of methane are CH4, the first one being carbon. So 75% of the mass of any quantity of gas is carbon, 75%. So 
So you can't call something that is made up of 75% carbon that when you burn, you get huge quantities of carbon dioxide. You can't call that a low carbon fuel. It is a high carbon fuel. It's just lower carbon than the worst fuels you could possibly imagine, like coal. But it is incredibly high carbon. It also has um, a lot of other leaks in the production of, of methane and the extraction of methane that there that you get methane gases released into the atmosphere, which don't last so long, but have a very um, high warming impact in the near term. So it, it, in no way should be classified as a green fuel. It should not be classified as a as a um, as a transition fuel either. So it is not part of, of the agenda for meeting meeting our Paris commitments. So he is misguided, completely misguided, or been deliberately uh, obtuse in, in making that statement. But remember, it's not just the UK here. The EU has, has already, already pushed very hard on gas. Lots of parts of the world now are trying to push hard on gas being the new green fuel. So the, you know, the UK government has put in a billion pounds of public money into the development of a huge field in Mozambique, a liquefied natural gas field, not for the Mozambicans, of course, but for export to other parts of the world, including, of course, the UK. So there was lots of money around the world being spent on gas. Um, and the rhetorical language around it is that it's a transition fuel. It's, it's, it's probably accurate. It's a transition fuel to four degrees centigrade of warming. It's not a transition to 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade of warming. So if, if perhaps quasi Kwarteng, he meant that, that it's a low carbon fuel relative to 4 degrees centigrade of warming, maybe some legitimacy to his arguments. If you had the ear of the British government, I don't know who has, but if you did have the ear of the British government, what would you be saying to them regarding their choices within the carbon budgets and the pressure faced by energy shortages in, at the moment? Well, I think the, the Putin issue, I don't want to call it the Russian issue because I think it's, it's, you know, it's too easy to, to paint the whole of Russia as if they're all little Putins, which of course they clearly aren't. It's been driven by one particular person with a small acolyte of of others around him what's happened with you know in terms of the oil, the the oil and gas price shock and the security issues i think reflects or draw, should draw attention to two things one is that why are we still locked into fossil fuels 32 years after the first ipcc report 30 years after the unfccc was set up in the rio earth summit in 1992 if we had actually taken some note of what our science repeatedly says. If we had actually converted the rhetorical speeches of our grand leaders into action, it wouldn't matter what Putin did in oil and gas because we wouldn't be there today. We wouldn't be locked into that. The fact is we have spent 32 years deliberately choosing to prefer rhetoric over action on climate change. So we're still locked into fossil fuels. So the first thing we have to do is have a bit of humility and recognize that our our deliberate delusion and deception for 30 years has left us in this vulnerable position where we have this price fertility when something happens, such as, as, as Putin's escapades in Ukraine. But the second part of that, I think, is that what is our emergency response to this? Is it like the emergency response we had in 39, where we say we've got limited supply? How do we fairly ration it out? No, it's not. We send our leaders around the world to talk to any despot to try and get more oil and gas out of the ground. So because one despot has decided to do something in Ukraine that, have, that affects oil and gas price um, prices and, and security, we then wander off to other despots to find out if they can get more, more oil and gas out of the ground. 
the way we would have responded or should have responded in my view was to say this is this is very much in the near term it's a demand issue so if we are really genuinely concerned about people who are suffering and there are significant numbers of people around the world that particularly talk about the uk suffering from fuel poverty as a consequence of this then our response should have been well is it appropriate for for people still to be driving around in very large cars? Is it appropriate for us to be flying in stars for the for the BAFTA awards? Worrying, you know, did anyone worry about the kerosene that was being used there that could have been used for something else? So what was what was happening is that we're we're not affected, we're not implementing any policies on the demand side. We're simply saying we'll look for more supply, which will never be quick. And then what why are we doing that? Why have we not actually said, well, how do we ration out fairly a limited supply so that everyone can afford to heat their homes? Why haven't we not done that? Because none of the people, of course, making these decisions are in fuel poverty. None of them are actually feeling this crisis. I mean, we keep we have this sort of language of the cost of living crisis in the UK that, that includes significantly, of course, the energy issue. But I don't know of anyone that I've heard discussing this in the BBC who will be suffering the cost of living crisis, other than very occasionally they'll bring a poor person in to talk about this, or an average income person in to talk about these issues. But 90% of the time, it's a high-emitting, high emitting, very wealthy person talking about the cost of living crisis and energy insecurity, neither of which they have any, we have, no flavour of. I mean, I, it's not impacting me. I can afford the fuel. I can afford the prices going up in the shops. And so I find it worrying that we have not taken any demand side measures to deal with this. And um, so what we should be doing, if, if you ask me to stay, how do you stay in the carbon budgets and deal with the immediacy of the problems that we face? And they're very real problems. And some people are talking about 30 to 50% of UK households going into fuel poverty, where they cannot heat their homes sufficiently to try and I mean, ensure that they're in good, good enough quality for their children to have good health living in those homes. So it's it really, really very disturbing that with the rocketing price of energy in the UK, and I'm sure this is happening in other countries as well. We should be, one, looking to do demand-side measures now, which is about how do you allocate out a limited supply in a fair fashion, and two, absolute sort of um, you know, uh, industrial renaissance in, in terms of um, developing renewables. So we should be producing renewables like there's no tomorrow, and at the same time doing the demand-side measures. Those two would deal with the short term and the medium to long term. But we're doing neither. We're not doing anything on the demand side. And we're wandering around different oil and gas test spots around the world saying, please produce some more oil and gas. Okay. And if you take that idea of rationing and the scaling up of renewables, and you look around the world of nations, and I think a good example is India, where in, uh, Prime Minister Modi has said, you know, we need a trillion dollars to accelerate our transition. Um, and that's obviously met with hostility by British press, so forget it, the kind of response. Mm. Do you think that given the constraints of this report, given where the people who need the help and it scales beyond India, do you think that we just have to now think about finding that budget, handing over the wealth for a collective. It's not solely to help them. It's actually there is a comeback to us in that we get to we get to survive in the long term. Yeah. Well, without a doubt. I mean, there's abs again, it comes back to are we serious about our commitments? 
and this is what we, we lay out really clear in the report, if we're serious about our commitments, we have to do everything we can on mitigation to reduce our emissions. But that in itself is not going to be enough because for the poor parts of the world, they're not going to be leapfrogging over the fossil fuel period or area that we've, that we've benefited from. They're going to be using what they have as their indigenous resources. And we simply don't, don't have the carbon budget space for that. So we've got to um, provide some financial wherewithal to help them leapfrog over the, over what we have benefited, benefited from. So we're asking them to keep their oil and gas in the ground and to move ahead with, with a, um, a, you know, um, an energy-efficient, renewable, low-carbon energy future. And that will initially that will be quite expensive. And so without a doubt, we have to provide the wherewithal for that. I don't see it as aid. I never have done. I see this as reparation. And that is because what we what we have done, at least for 30 years, is to knowingly do almost nothing about our emissions. And I can no doubt I can hear the people in the Committee on Climate Change and different MPs in the UK and other wealthy countries saying, well, look how wonderful you know we've been on this. But actually, when you look at our total carbon footprint, if you look at the total carbon footprint for the EU typically, then it's it's barely changed since 1990. Where it has come down, it's significantly been driven by um, offshoring our emissions to other parts of the world. So the UK, if you take account of the full carbon footprint of the UK, it's probably down 15% in 30-odd years, which is less than half a percent a year. So almost nothing. And most of that was driven by um, the shift away from gas to coal. Most of that, actually, or a significant part of that, not because of carbon reasons, but because of issues to do with sulfur and wider pollution. And of course, offshoring our emissions to other parts of the world. And that's what all of the so-called progressive countries have done. They've, they've made no real attempt to change the landscape of their, of their um, energy systems. And so we haven't done anything for 30 years. We've used up the carbon budget. And now we're asking the poor parts of the world who are already suffering the impacts of our, our choice to fail to not use their fossil fuels. So there's a two elements to this. One, they have to live with the impacts that we've deliberately imposed upon them. And second, we're asking them not to use any more fossil fuels. And so we have to, we, we, we have to you, know, you know, morally and practically, we are obliged to help them leapfrog over this fossil fuel period. And so we have to pay this, make, make these payments. And they're not small. There's 100 billion per year that we keep arguing about. As I think we should just almost ignore it. It's a crumb that has fallen from the rich feasted table of, of the wealthy countries and that crumb we are then arguing about who should pay it and that's the real skill of these negotiations is you argue about who pays for the crumb but that's an irrelevance relative to the scale of the challenge that we that we face where we're talking about probably tens and tens of trillions of pounds are going to be required for this transfer to a low carbon future to do it in the time frame to stay within 1.5, I disagree with virtually all the economists on this. That it's going to be the sort of enthusiastic economists for this transition. I don't think it will be cheap. I think it will be very, 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 very costly, but much less cost than not doing it. I think we've underplayed the cost of making these transitions. There's not just the economic cost, but the social disruption that is required, particularly in the wealthy parts of the world, as we rapidly make this transition. Now, if we'd made it earlier, we could have made it in a, in a much more sort of measured, careful you know, staged fashion. When you're faced with an emergency, the emergency measures typically are challenging. And we are in a climate emergency. As I say, every month we're using just under 1% of the remaining carbon budget. It's completely shocking. Do you look at the carbon budget, you look at the the odds that you've given, and then you say, well, you know, it's too expensive. I mean, it, it's it's insane that we just 
take that away and just say, right, what do we literally, what do we have to do within the, the confines of this emergency and, and go for yeah. it? Yeah, and I, I find it, although I'm being buoyed up by how civil society, a whole, and I've spoken about this before on many occasions, a whole sort of messy gaggle of civil society groups and including in that some academics and others as well, I think have got a handle on on what the scale of this challenge is and are calling for really radical change. The established voices, I think, are, and that, in that I'm including lots of senior academics, I think are the problem. And they are the new climate sceptics, in my view. It's not that they deny the science, but they deny the, what the mitigation is necessary to align with the science and the commitments that they have made, that we have made. To me, that is a real issue. Where I hear meeting after meeting, where you hear these grand words and wonderful speeches, and it's just hidden behind the sorts of nonsense we're hearing from the UK about gas being a green fuel, behind uh, technologies in the future, removing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. All of that is about avoiding the radical changes that are required today. Last year, we discussed the work you did around elites wielding too much power in society yes, yeah. and they are in large part supported by academics and other enablers and in recent months we've seen a rise in scientists protesting all the way around the world i was contacted by a group last week in argentina and other parts of central america who are launching a campaign calling for climate justice through debt cancellation to enable a faster response to climate and so on does this growing movement of academics climate scientists indicate a shift that you were alluding to then when it's become even in the uk in america to just mention south america is very it's becoming more overt and would yeah, you say think, that isn't an, a shift in the enabler i think so i mean i think i think like a lot of times we can only really tell in retrospect but it's certainly in line with what we were suggesting that we and i'm not too surprised because at some point you can no longer just keep spouting the same rhetoric, hiding behind the same sort of facades. Because you, you, I mean, initially we delude us, we're deluding others, and we're deluding ourselves. But I think a lot of the scientists involved in this, they quite quickly see, see through that sort of delusion, and they start to think, well, actually, this isn't this isn't looking very likely. We aren't moving in the right direction. You know, the numbers paint a picture for them, and, and I think when we're all like this, actually, I mean, we all we all paint a picture that comfortably fits with our worldview. But as we as we redo that, as we re reassess that re repeatedly, eventually it doesn't fit with our worldview. And I think those people whose whose lives are particularly spent working around the numerical framing of this, and indeed the political framing to some degree, eventually you can't hold those two. You know, the worldview that they that they have doesn't fit with the numbers and the analysis that they're, that they're doing. And I think we're seeing that with quite a lot of the scientists. Um, now saying that this just doesn't look in any way viable um, we need to do something radically different and so a lot of them now are, are protesting because their voices are not being heard but they are still being drowned out I think in part by still some quite senior academics and civil servants and policymakers who still want to sing this sort of green growth tale and I think that's supported significantly by the media as well and that's why I'm saying to me that particular cohort well-meaning though they are are more dangerous, as I see it, more dangerous than the Exxons, the BPs, and the Shells, who have been deliberately undermining climate change for years. And so I think that group, to me, are the, are the climate sceptics, are the ones we have to overcome. And of course, that cohort, that expert cohort, are the ones that link very much with those elites that we talked about, the Davos cluster. But I think there are, as you're stating here, I think there are more people prepared to step outside and have their voices heard. The activism 
that I've seen over the last few weeks has been fascinating in the UK, of breaking into meetings and the lunches that Quasi Quarteng is actually hosting with um, you know, fossil fuel producers in Africa and stuff like this has been has been um, amazing to watch. And also in the contrast to how the government is clamping down and really trying to criminalise these every kind of calling out of of what really they should be listening to do you think that in some respects the papers you're producing are almost like um defense testimonies for these activists when they're getting dragged into court at the moment well i mean (laughs) i'm very pleased about that and i don't i don't shy away from that that academic work can be used by all sorts of people you know the bps and shells can use this work and so can the activists and as as my view as long as they're using it appropriately that's that I mean, our job as academics is to put the information out there and people will use it I, i'd rather use be used appropriately and i think if it is used as a defense in court cases and elsewhere then that is absolutely fine um and indeed i i've been engaged over many many years now in various court cases where i try to remain as a, as an academic i try to remain independent and almost indifferent to the people that are bringing the case or, or defending a situation that it could be about airport expansion or whatever, or protest. My job, as, as far as I can see as an academic, is simply to inform the decision makers in that legal process. But I'm pleased when they are bringing this work in and when they are trying to bring academics in to, to engage. And, it, and, I, and I find it disturbing and interesting that in the law that we still, we will protect things that are causing incredible damage and we will prosecute things that are trying to stop that damage being caused. And I do think there's a role here. And I know there's some early signs of this. There is a role, I think, for, for, for law, for the legal system, to be, for those involved, to get much more involved in this, in this debate. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's not my, my realm at all. But I wonder, historically, has that happened in, in other major changes? So we, you look at the suffragettes and so forth. I mean, lots of those were imprisoned. And of course, in the end, their cause was was seen to be appropriate and and changes were made and you wonder is that I, I don't know but how did the legal profession engage in that did they did they have any part to play because i wonder is, is there a role for, for them thinking about these issues today i know there are barristers and so forth other people trying to trying to bring these issues you know to a higher profile within the legal system but at the moment it seems to protect the people causing the damage and not the people that are trying to prevent the damage being caused You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. You are listening to Dr. Kevin Anderson, interviewed by Nick Breeze on the Climate Gen podcast. Back to Nick. I mean, the first time I interviewed you was at Paris, was in Paris at the COP, and, and I think it was about a 55-minute interview. I found the, the recording the other day. But since then, I was disappointed because, unfortunately, you're kind of saying the same things, and we're, we're still in pretty much in the same boat. You know, some things have changed. And now you're issuing a report with, yeah. with this is like the last chance saloon if we want to actually do this. So what are the signals that have emerged since that period that you would say is strikingly different today, hopeful or not hopeful? Real signals. I mean, the, I mean, what you, the language you used then, the last, last chance saloon, um, I, I remember right, I gave a talk for the Welsh government back in I don't know, 2006, I think. I, think that's what, I think that's what they called it. 
last chance saloon. It was, it was something like last orders in the last chance, last chance saloon. So, it was, and so I think we have to be careful with that sort of language. It has to be caveated uh, um, if we are to use it. We're not in the same situation we were in 2015. I mean, since 2015, we've put out a huge amount of carbon dioxide. So we put out not far, in di not far different to the budget that we have left for 1.5. So we, we, you know, at 40 odd billion tons a year, we are using the budget up at a phenomenally fast rate. So the scale of the emergency we face today is considerably more challenging than it was in 2015. It was very challenging in 2015, but you know, it, there were, there were options then that you had, which are now off the table. And every year we choose to fail. Or, and I think this is an important point, every year we choose to do something that makes us feel okay. We say we're making a step in the right direction. The point, reason I'm raising that is because I regularly hear that. Well, it's better than doing nothing, but it is still a step backwards. A step in the right direction that isn't a large enough step in the right direction is a step backwards, just not as far back as it would otherwise have been. So we're not making progress. We're just not regressing as fast as we could be. Um, and so I think that's important to bear that in mind, that every year we fail, we go backwards and it gets more challenging. And so the scale of that emergency now, the sorts of changes that are required are so deeply profound. I mean, they were very difficult then, but they're, they, they beg questions about every single facet of contemporary society. But do we hear that debate amongst the people that are controlling the, the, the established message? Of course we don't. We don't hear anything like that at all. And we don't hear enough people, though, as you said, we are, we are hearing more people now um, decrying the nonsense that is spouted by by that establishment, by those elites. I would argue the Mark Kahn is, um, and, and though I think there's some wonderful work coming out of the Committee on Climate Change, at a technical level, I would argue the overall framing is very much part of the problem. And so a lot of these sort of senior groups involved in these discussions, I think, are unprepared to say in public what they what they know privately and sometimes what they tell me privately. I mean, I have mentioned this on, on many occasions, but to me, that is a real concern where, where experts in the field, particularly academics, because we are paid to be honest and direct about our research, when we say things in private that we're not prepared to say in public and we will sweeten the pill in public, you know, it's hugely sweeten the pill in public. And I think that's deeply arrogant of often mm. very decent people that we think that the, the public can't deal with it the policymakers can't deal with it but somehow we can i think we just have to as particularly for us as academics just say what our conclusions are directly and clearly with the assumptions made transparent and all the caveats made made clear in paris the i'd say the civil society response was was almost euphoric that there was some kind of agreement that came out of it and, and quite sedate and then you fast forward to glasgow and I would say it was a, it was like a militarized compound with very angry people, you know, organizing their marches around the city, and but not really being allowed near the actual conference center. Do you think that that is part of the visible side now that's going to grow? And is that the right way for us to go? Is it the only way for us to go? Is to continue well, to build on this momentum yeah. of activism? I mean, I doubt it's the only way, but I think it's one of the very important ways because it catalyzes changes elsewhere. It doesn't just mean that other people join that activism. It may make other people think differently and approach things in a different way. But I also think controlling activism, and again, let's be clear, I'm talking here well outside my area of expertise. This is my concern as a, as a citizen and my wider reading. 
But as I say, controlling activism, allowing a certain level of activism, and then controlling it is a real skill of maintaining the status quo because it, it makes us think that you know, we're open to, to think differently. And so if we look at what happened in Glasgow, so there's a huge march in Glasgow, very large numbers of people involved. Where did it finish? It finished in the park, not in the huge, whatever they were, 15-foot wire ghettoed blue zone where all the negotiators were. And it's because it was allowed to go to the park. But is that activism? Is that a protest when you go along the route you're told to go to the park where you sort of fizzle out and you're not seen and filmed and heard banging on the big 15-foot blue gates that lock the negotiators away from wider society? Now, I'm not suggesting that it should be breaking them down and, you know, and a sort of a, a Trumpian approach. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that at all. But I do think perhaps turning up there and seeing the, those protests at the gates of the place where the negotiators are saying things like, oh, gas is a clean transition fuel, that we need to hear those voices in the ears of the negotiators, of the policymakers, not as they, as they fade out in the parks of Glasgow. So I think there's a step to be made away from protests that are organised by the status quo to fit with the established views, to give the sense of allowing protest. And the next phase of protests, which is actually trying to disrupt those negotiations in as constructive fashion as possible. You know, I would never be suggesting violence or anything like that in any way, shape or form. But it does seem to me that the voices have been so far sufficiently controlled not to change the the language and the space within which negotiations negotiators are talking. I mean, the sort of headspace in which within which they're talking, which allows Quasi Kartang to say, "Oh, you know, gas is green." I mean, that is in 2022 that a highly educated member of the British cabinet can say that can suggest that we should be reclassifying gas as a green fuel tells us something about how come the status quo is very much locked into the old way of doing things. To the last century thinking, really. It is. And I think that's one of our big problems. I think a lot of the, and again, it's language I've used before, but a lot of the people involved in trying to, trying to think about what we're going to do about climate change, they're somewhere between 1970 and 1980. I think some of them are still in 1870. Yeah, there's no systems thinking going in into their development of policy and their thinking about these issues. There's no real understanding, as I can see, about the sorts of impacts that play out around the world, about the actual science underpinning this, the social science underpinning this, issues of equity. And indeed, of course, the bit that was bang on about, the opportunities for change as well. Now, you know, that This is a, an issue which is probably the most system-oriented challenge that we've yet faced. And we have people who just look at it in a very siloed, disciplinary fashion. And of course, universities have been part of that problem. That's how we've developed in universities. We have departments and very siloed reductionist thinking, and it's been phenomenally successful. But I don't think we've had to face a system-level challenge like climate change before. And at the moment, we look to be ill-equipped. We're certainly ill-equipped at the policy level. The policymakers are simply not up to the job. But I'm not sure that they're being helped a lot by our academic community either, particularly because we still are deeply reductionist in our way of thinking about these issues. We, we need, to, I don't want to play out, suggest anyone that provides an appropriate role model, but someone like FDR with that much 
a much bigger systems interpretation of the challenges he was facing. And I'm not saying I agree with everything he, he was suggesting, but he, he was prepared to think about things in a much more sort of open and I would argue radical way and was phenomenally successful. I mean, he had, wasn't it four terms of office? Yeah. He didn't have four terms of office because he followed a few focus groups because he had Mori do a quick poll of a few people. But it was cogent, caring, empathetic leadership. And, yeah. it, and I think it would be fair to say that he did have a more systems-oriented view of the world, the world in which he was operating anyway. But prepared to take the, the level of action required to meet the challenge. And that was- yes, and to argue for it. I mean, yeah. his arguments were pretty, I mean, they were, they were very, very challenging for the day. But who do we who do we see do we see that today? Do we see that in the UK's prime minister? Do we see that in in many of the EU countries? Do we see it in the US? I mean, it's it's, it's there's, there's there is absolutely no leadership on climate change with any of these so-called progressive countries. If you take that point, and in the last few weeks we've had this heat wave in Europe, we've had a heat wave in India and Pakistan, and these things are, are now tangible and visible and people do see it and then there's a greater understanding of the things exist like cascading tipping points that there's a lot of work that people grasp the the broad bends of it and think hang on a minute you know if these things are happening at an exponential rate then perhaps we are past the point of really doing anything but people do lose hope and i read it on comment feeds online and but is there is there still room for this exponential social response? Do you think? Well, there are two bits to that, as I see it. Anyway, I, I, I've, I don't like the doomsday narrative. I've been accused of it, but I completely don't. I, it's not one I accept at all. Uh, you know, if we carry on as we are today, then the prospects don't look promising. <laughs> look, I mean, they look really dire. But we don't have to carry on as we are today. And then what some people say, and this is what the deep doomsday sort of view of this, is that we've already passed all the tipping points. But what I like about the uncertainty in the science, and I don't mean the uncertainty about, you know, is climate change caused by reducing, by um, emitting carbon dioxide? All of that we know. But we don't know exactly what the response to the climate is going to be. So we don't know if we've passed the tipping points or not. And because we don't know that, then it's worth trying everything we can to avoid passing them. The lower the temperature that we can hold to, the less chance that you pass tipping points. And so, you know, it's it's almost um, an excuse or a defense for inaction to say, oh, well, we're too late. Well, we don't know we're too late. The science tells us that the more CO2 and other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the higher the temperature goes. There's, and we know that with a high degree of certainty. What the science can't tell us is exactly where these tipping points are. And so there is everything to play for. Because if, as the temperature goes up, the chance of passing the tipping points is greater. When you pass some of these tipping points, they may well cascade. And then, then you get in a position where, well, what, what do we do now? And I don't think there's anything we know that we could do. And so there is everything to play for now. And so that's a very hopeful narrative. That's a narrative that it doesn't matter whether we have passed the tipping points, which because we don't know, but we know the consequences are dire if we do. And therefore, what, what action does that leave you with? Everything you can possibly do today. And that's what we should be doing. But instead, what are we doing? Nothing that we can do today other than increasingly eloquent speeches and more rhetorical, technical salvations in the future. That, that's all we're doing. We're not, we're not trying to reduce our emissions. 
know, we had reductions as a result, result of COVID, but they went up again the following year. They'll go up again this year. Probably next year will be higher again. So 20, we've got on to 30, 33, 35 years after we had the first IPCC report, emissions will very likely still be rising. And we'll always still be blaming someone else. We'll be blaming other countries, other sectors, other people. We won't be looking at this and saying, well, what do we need to do? And that we is very important in that, in that, I mean, we have to be very careful about this collective we, in that most emissions arise from the, the lives that relatively few of us have normalized. But the impacts are felt, at least initially, less by us and more by those people who are not emitting or emitting very little. And, and also have very, even in the wealthy countries, have very little agency for change. And so we have to be very careful about this assumption that we're all in this together. It's just like the, very similar to the cost of living crisis, which I don't think, we're, and this sounds very radical, but I don't think really exists. It's not a cost of living crisis. It's an, an inequity crisis. You know, we, we can afford, in the, in, for example, in somewhere like the UK, certainly for some, this holds for the wealthy countries of the world anyway, that it's not that we're short of resources and funding to ensure everyone has good access to food and fuel and heating and so forth. We can afford that. We just, we just choose to distribute it out in such a way that significant swathes of our society end up being in a crisis. But that's not necessarily because of the, because of the cost of living. It's because they haven't got the wherewithal to, to purchase the goods that are necessary. And why haven't they got it? Because people like me have, have chosen to have to take a much larger share of the, of the pie in our own country. And that has a direct knock-on in our sort of adaptation, preparation of all the other things we should be doing across our society, which we're just well, ad- totally yeah. ignoring. And yeah, adaptation, of course, is absolutely key. And adaptation doesn't mean wealthy people should build, you know, new versions of sort of like they had nuclear bunkers before. Now we build flooding bunkers and climate. That's not adaptation. That what we should be looking at are the, are the you know the bigger picture adaptation changes we need to make to our infrastructure so that we, you know so that all of our society can deal with the warming climate that we are going to continue to live through. I mean, we're going to see increased warming. And there, I think, I mean, it's been a Cinderella issue for a long time, and I don't think it should take away from mitigation. I think mitigation, reducing our emissions, is absolutely key. But we also have to raise up the, the profile of adaptation. We are already, I mean, for many people around the world, they are already living and dying with climate change. And I think yeah. we have to recognise that, that. And some of them, of course, have many, some parts of the world, I mean, Bangladesh, I think, is a good example where, there are many adaptation practices that we can be learning from as well. So there's an interplay here that we, we, we all need to learn these lessons from each other. But what is key in adaptation is it's, it's very regional, it's very cultural. So mitigation, particularly from the energy realm, we know what we need to do and it looks quite similar in, in, in different parts of the world. I mean, the geographies and the, and the geology may change things a little bit, but we know that they're, they're very similar technologies and that everyone just needs to move towards those. But when it comes to adaptation, I think it's much, it's much more related to your geography and your geology than is the mitigation um, and your culture and, of course, the climate that you, that, you, that you live with as well. And so there, I think there is still quite a lot of scientific work to try and get some sort of handle on what are the regional variations of climate change. So if you're trying to look at different parts of the world, what should they adapt to? And I think in that sense, adaptation is much harder than mitigation because mitigation is just about reducing our emissions. Yeah, but adaptation is adaptation to what? Are you going to get increased rainfall or more rainfall? Will it will it um, 
be in different patterns spatially across the year? Will it, um, you know, will it be more monsoon conditions? And um, you're going to get windier climates. Are you going to, you know, is it going to get snowier? Is it going to get colder? I mean, it's really hard then to say, well, how how do you adapt to that sort of full range? I mean, and the UK is a great example with the Gulf Stream. We don't know really, you know, will the Gulf Stream weaken sufficiently that actually we will be masked from some of the warming? We might even get some cooling. We, those sorts of variations in different ways will occur to different areas around the world. And there, I think there's a lot of work still to be done to try to help communities know well, how should you adapt and as well as what do you adapt to. And if you do adaptation for 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade, but you hit three or four, are you maladapted? Then do you lock in inappropriate infrastructures? And so when you're adapting, you know, if you've got economists there who I think generally provide no useful guidance, at least standard economists to any of these sort of issues. But if you had economists, they'd say, oh, we're going, if we're going to adapt, or if we do this for 1.5, it'd be the cheaper way of doing it. Yeah, but will it work at three? Um, three degrees centigrade. And of course, they'll have discounted the future, so they, they won't worry whether, whether it does or not. But I think standing back from that, it seems more reasonable to me to say, even if it's more expensive, let's put in the infrastructure that can both deal with 1.5, but also deal with, say, what looks like three degrees centigrade of warming in our local environment. And so I think we we have to think more about how to adapt. And I'm not sure we're yet doing that. And I think it's mm. a more complicated issue. It's Say it's a Cinderella issue. It's not being given sufficient attention on, and nowhere near sufficient funding. But also I think it's a more complex issue than mitigation. And is there also a, a point where these converge? So when you talk about the insulate homes for example there was the you know the protest insulate britain but the, mm. if you did insulate your home then you're taking pressure off your need for so much heating in which case you reduce your overall impact or your overall need yeah i mean there's a lot of crossovers here but they're also that you've got to be very careful if you insulate your home or if you build a house that can be very efficient for from a heating point of view well what happens if it gets very hot is it also good from a cooling point of view? So we have to gain, take those, you know, that, that mitigation adaptation. We've got to really think those things through. And I think there is a concern here that a lot of modern buildings, actually, you, they may be quite efficient from a thermodynamic point of view for heating, but you get, you get the sun come onto them and they, they heat up almost immediately inside. They're all glass and steel and a bit of concrete and so forth. A lot of them don't have a huge thermal mass. And so they become really problematic from a, from a heating point of view. So those things need to be thought through as well. So rather than sort of solve one problem, uh, but actually cause another, think about them again from a systems perspective. But we're not yet, I don't particularly good at doing that. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much. That's um, very informative. It's been good to talk to you. From the UK, that was a superb interview of top climate scientist Dr. Kevin Anderson. It was by the podcaster and filmmaker Nick Breeze and recorded in the middle of June 2022. Of course, you can listen to this show again or download it or pass it on from the Radio Ecoshock website at ecoshock.org. But why not go direct and explore the many fine climate discussions hosted by Nick Breeze it is all available on his website at www.gen.cc or find the Climate Gen podcast on all major podcast channels and Patreon. My thanks to Nick Breeze for permission to rebroadcast this wonderful interview with Kevin Anderson. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, ecoshock.org. 
Radio EcoShock. In last week's show, I talked about a new view in science pointing to a future worth fighting for. A team of five top climate scientists say whatever temperature the world reaches, when we finally stop adding greenhouse gases, that would be a resting point for land temperatures at least. So if we quit our addiction in a three-degree hotter world, Earth would not continue to warm even more. The reason? The oceans, which form the majority of Earth's covering, would capture any continued warmth and stow it deep below for centuries. Climate change would not stop. The ocean would continue to heat. The ice caps continue to melt. Sea level would rise for centuries. And other dangerous tipping points might be crossed, like a change to the North Atlantic Ocean currents or deforestation of the Amazon. But land temperatures, where humans and most of the species we see live, that could stabilize, and humans can still determine when that happens. There is still a lot of discussion about this. The paper's authors say land temperatures would stabilize within just a few years of balancing carbon emissions. Keep in mind, other scientists, in the most recent intergovernmental report, the AR6, said Earth would continue 20 to 30 years of warming after net zero emissions. Others still think Earth will keep warming for a very long time, including the land, for a variety of reasons. Unfortunately, it is possible the only way we can know for certain is to live it, to play for a win by getting to net zero very quickly before we get to two degrees of warming and beyond. There is also a new paper bearing on all of this titled Estimating the Timing of Geophysical Commitment to 1.5 and 2 degrees C of Global Warming. This study, led by the University of Washington grad student Michelle Dvorak, finds Earth will warm for a few years even after net zero and then cool down a bit in a stabilized state. The authors calculate when and in what year humanity and Earth will be committed to crossing the established danger lines based on the emissions path that we take. The authors of this new paper say, quote, Assuming a medium emissions trajectory, SSP2 to 4.5, we find that we are already committed to peak warming greater than 1.5 degrees C with 42% probability, increasing to 66% by 2029. Probability of peak warming greater than 2 degrees C is currently 2%, increasing to 66% by 2057. Because climate will cool from peak warming, as greenhouse gas concentrations decline, committed warming of 1.5 degrees will not occur with at least 66% probability until 2055, end quote. Well, that's a little confusing yet, and I hope to talk to the lead author, perhaps next season, to figure out what that really means. All of this discussion of a possible landing point reminds me of a key paper from August 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The title is Trajectories of the Earth's System in the Anthropocene. It's a famous paper now, very much cited. It was led by Dr. Will Steffen. Figure 2 in that paper shows a stabilized Earth, a kind of landing point, like a shelf in the motion toward a greenhouse Earth. 
The 2018 study's abstract begins, We explore the risk that self-reinforcing feedbacks could push the Earth's system towards a planetary threshold that, if crossed, could prevent stabilization of the climate at intermediate temperature rises and cause continued warming on a hothouse Earth pathway, even as human emissions are reduced. End quote. The 2018 Trajectories paper continues, Is there a planetary threshold in the trajectory of the Earth system that, if crossed, could prevent stabilization in a range of intermediate temperature rises? The authors say, quote, Stability landscape showing the pathway of the Earth system out of the Holocene, and thus out of the glacial-interglacial limit cycle, to its present position in the hotter Anthropocene. The fork in the road is shown in Figure 1 as two divergent pathways of the Earth system in the future. Currently, the Earth system is on a hothouse Earth pathway, driven by human emissions of greenhouse gases and biosphere degradation, toward a planetary threshold at about 2 degrees C, beyond which the system follows an essentially irreversible pathway driven by intrinsic biogeophysical feedbacks. The other pathway leads to stabilized Earth, a pathway of Earth system stewardship guided by human-created feedbacks to a quasi-stable, human-maintained basis of attraction. End quote. I interviewed the lead author of that, Will Steffen, about this paper shortly after it was published. That Radio Ecoshock show is called Hothouse Earth, and it's posted September 13, 2018. You can listen to my 28-minute interview with climate scientist Will Steffen, either in CD quality or lo-fi, at my website, ecoshock.org. So, let's be blunt. Right now, this civilization is working as hard as it can to overheat the Earth as quickly as possible. And somehow, we have to change that. How and who? Stay tuned with Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. (laughs) 